welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we consider the nature of time. In our culture, we have placed a set of habitual notions about time on top of the soul's instincts and intuitions about rhythm and temporality. In our culture, we sense the nature of time in clocks and calendars. Look anywhere in physics, in politics, in philosophy, psychology, you will find some version of clock time as the image of real time. Even Einstein worked with time as meaning whatever a clock says. But how does the story of time in our culture really go? Think about it this way. Have we in the West, in the dominant culture, gotten our sense of time from a careful cultivation of our relationship with nature? Do we understand time because we've gotten ever more sensitive to nature, to mind, to experience itself? Or is there another story? Once upon a time, people didn't have clocks. Do we know how we got them? Now, I'd love to start this story in the far reaches of primordial memory, in the origins of the world as we know it. But for now, we won't go back that far. We can start with once upon a time when the rhythm of the day was kept by the church bell. It synchronized people with a sense of the divine, a sense of sacredness. Even if you aren't a a theistic person, you can appreciate this attunement to something that seems inherently meaningful. The passing of the day involved a rhythm of prayer, a rhythm of ritual, a rhythm of reverence. The passing of the year went the same way because the divine made things grow. We had to at least attend to the cycles of seasons and the sacred arc of the sun in the sky. The music of the church bells brought a constant reminder of participating in an ethical order. But things were not exactly idyllic. The agriculture practiced in many Indo-European and Asian cultures could be characterized as invasive, especially where it involved tilling or otherwise interfering with large tracts of land in a significant way. Invasive agriculture in the West especially primed the pump for capitalism. Maybe in England more than anywhere else, but throughout Europe, markets and industry became increasingly important. And that meant that labor became sellable on the basis of a new conception, time. Time was no longer rhythm and season, but a circle of equal units, each of which had equal value in a market economy. Using this new conception of time became especially important in the new textile industry. It turns out the clock 
initially became of particular importance in parts of Europe dominated by the textile industry. As Jacques Le Goff tells it, in the cloth manufacturing cities of the 14th century, quote, the town was burdened with a new time, the time of the cloth makers. This time indicated the dominance of a social category. It was the time of the new masters, end quote. But this way of dividing the day spread pretty quickly, and it spread in a strange way. Initially, clocks were used primarily to keep track of labor. They belonged to the capitalists, and they were kept in factories, behind closed doors, or they were items possessed by the very wealthy. Workers began to worry that the capitalists might slow the factory clocks in order to get more labor than they were actually paying for. Now, the workers had no way to verify for themselves that they were working the agreed amount of time. And the only way to do that would be to get clocks of their own. And so a demand grew, and eventually a market grew, for inexpensive and eventually quite portable clocks. But as the clock spread like a virus, so did its conception of time. In other words, the capitalist's conception of time. The way of ordering a workplace so as to make optimal profit became the default way of ordering everything else, because life began to revolve around the activities of the market rather than the activities of nature. And so, the sacred rhythms of life and the soul were displaced. A regime of time management invaded every area of life, including education, religion, and even leisure time. How many of us go on vacation without ever escaping the clock? Indeed, we often have very tight schedules on vacation with tours, dinners, flights, entertainment, all booked in advance, all planned out, in part because we have to fit so much in so little time. It's important to sense the difference between time on the one hand and what we might call temporality on the other. There are rhythms of life, and we tap into them in various ways. We also create certain rhythms, personally and culturally, in our relationship with nature. Prior to capitalism, the church bells indicated a temporality, but they did not really indicate time until the spread of clocks. Long ago, spiritual practitioners of the East measured temporality in terms of sticks of incense. A person might meditate for three sticks of incense, or four, or five, or more, rather than meditating in sessions measured out in minutes and hours as we do today. As the anthropologist David Dinwoodie summarizes, quote, what we generally refer to as time, the standard time of the West, goes back to the industrial age. It represents a culturally and historically specific temporal system and it serves poorly as a model for temporalities. 
Thus, in the anthropology of time, it is conventional to distinguish between time as the dominant form of representation of social rhythms in the West and temporality as social rhythms and their representation in general. With this in mind, it would be extraordinary for a non-Western society to have time as we in the West know it prior to its contact with Europeans. After all, time as we know it is effectively a variety of European temporality, end quote. And in particular, it's a variety of capitalist market thinking. The West, in other words, has a remarkably weird notion of time, a notion that seems mechanical and monetary. We might call it industrialized time, or time 2.0, or manufactured time. And given that it long predates modern science, we might even suspect our science is something like an industrialized or manufactured or economized thing from the outset. Granted, there are lots of ways to practice and realize temporality. Indeed, that's part of the point here. On what basis will we practice and realize the experience of time, the experience of moment? We can admit that a certain kind of what we want to call knowledge appears when we deal with clocks. But what is that knowledge really worth? What does it do for us? What does it do to us? By means of that conception of time, what do we marginalize in terms of other varieties of experience? Other cultures have a sense of temporality, but for us to think they have Western time seems presumptuous, as does the assumption that they can't experience timelessness. What their experience might be of time or timelessness or the interrelation of those, that we would have to practice in order to actually realize. We would have to have a different experience ourselves. It's interesting to consider how proper thinking, truly original thinking, quality thinking, demands unstructured time and a cultivated spaciousness with proper material support. In other words, good thinking is a matter of ecology, not economics. Warren Buffett famously spends five or more hours a day just thinking, and his schedule is notoriously spacious rather than being filled with meetings. Watson and Crick spent many hours in conversation at the local pub, and Richard Feynman attributed his Nobel Prize to throwing out all sense of agenda and just playing. We can find countless examples just like that, and yet the dominant culture in general finds every way possible to overload and distract us. A playful and spiritual sense of temporality gets lost in all our agendas. We're talking about something that goes quite deep. For instance, consider an example of the insanity of 
the dominant culture that might seem small at first. I'm thinking of what we call daylight savings time. Daylight savings time. What a bizarre symptom. Daylight savings time is something like a declaration that we're going to live unnaturally. We're going to live apart from nature. We will send people to the hospital with heart attacks if we must. In case you didn't know it, the incidence of heart attacks spikes the Monday following the time shift. But we insist on time rather than temporality, rather than rhythm. We have appointments to keep. We have extraction operations to manage. We have ad campaigns to run. Migrations, cycles, nature's rhythms and curves, bah humbug. Forget about it. But one of the problems we face then in trying to arrive at a truly better way of knowing, a better way of living and loving, is that better ways of knowing and living and loving go against the very tendency to have an agenda the way we do when we are constellated in time. Or we could say, especially the way we do, constellated in time, because time seduces us into this agenda-having, this particular kind of agenda-having. In more limited terms, we could put it like this. We just don't have time for philosophical or spiritual practice, for really living up to our ideals. The same way that very few Athenians, ancient Athenians, had any real time to speak with Socrates who was only functioning as the conscience of their own soul, the conscience of his culture. But they had no time for him. In general, the more we need philosophical or spiritual practice, the more reasons we have for not practicing, legitimate-sounding reasons. Too tired, not today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a retreat next month or next year. Maybe if I didn't have so many appointments, errands, deadlines. It's not my fault. I had to take that extra client, that extra project, that extra trip. We don't really see the collusion, the way we and the craziness of the culture work together to keep us busy. It's a pattern of insanity. If we had leisure time, we might see the pattern of insanity for what it is, and we would have the time to disrupt it. As it stands, we have so many things to do. Maybe we need to stop doing. The clock encourages a doing orientation to life, and thus it limits our ways of knowing, constrains our capacity to live and to love more fully. Now, how could we ever think we can do life? And yet, Captain Clock commands us to try to do life. Zhuangzi, one of the great philosophical sages of non-doing, tells of a massive bird who can fly 40,000 miles. He writes, quote, The cicada and the little dove laugh at this, saying, when we make an effort and fly up, we can get as far as the elm or the sappinwood tree, but sometimes we don't make it at all and just fall down on the ground. Now, how is anyone going to go 40,000 miles? 
Zhuangzi continues, quote, If you go off to the green woods nearby, you can take along food for three meals and come back with your stomach as full as ever. If you are going 50 miles, you have to grind your grain the night before. And if you're going 500 miles, you have to start getting the provisions together three months in advance. What do these two creatures understand? Little understanding cannot come up to great understanding. End quote. The clock takes away the possibility for experiences that might appear laughable from within the confines of our small little lives, our scheduled lives, with their many pointless pressures, many seemingly important pressures. The clock takes our orientation out of the living world, placing it into human agendas that grope in every direction, conscious purposes that justify any means and ignore any unpleasant side effects. Cravings on the march throughout the day and night with no interruption, always at war with something, even ourselves. The clock invites invasion, makes space for the colonization of the soul by the pattern of insanity. The clock is a mandala of madness, not the divine madness inherent in sacred sanity, but madness in the pejorative sense, one in which beliefs assert themselves against reality. Dualistic delusions make an assault against the union of opposites that characterizes what we may poetically refer to as the sacred creative ordering of life, the sacred creative necessities and potentials of nature. The word sacred here needn't be thought of as religious. It signifies the intimate experience of wisdom, love, and beauty, the direct experience of the imminent wonder of life. Can we at least entertain the possibility that the clock cuts us off from life, from each other, or at least contributes to, seduces us into the cutting off? Can we entertain the possibility that the clock cuts us off from the moment? Let us speak to our own hearts for a moment. If we let go of our ordinary analysis, already corrupted potentially by our narrow view of time, if we let go of that, we can listen with the heart and the soul. We needn't worry if all of this doesn't make very much sense at first. We need time for philosophy, time to listen, to reflect, to contemplate. We can at least allow the heart to hear first. Listening with the heart and soul, does the following ring true? Time, as we live it, is the moment. Not a line, not a grinding, repeating circle, not a moving thing, Time, rather, is existence, 
fleeting and open. The clock pushes for closure against this openness. Openness swallows all attempts at closure. Maybe that's why the ego fears it, fears the openness we always are. The ego doesn't even want to listen to some of these contemplations, and the clock helps keep us stuck. The clock presents an argument, an analysis, a conceptual manner of relating. Time puts a grid over top of our experience. Life itself, we live it, we feel it. We feel our life in living ways, beyond minutes and hours, yet danced in rhythms, beyond words and ideas, yet expressed as an inherent meaningfulness, a play of meanings. Maybe we got hoodwinked into thinking there is something scientific about time. Or maybe scientists got hoodwinked into thinking there is something scientific about time, even though time as we know it, in the West, seems inextricably bound with commerce and conquest rather than intimacy with nature. Sadly, we rarely try to get in touch with rhythms we might sense in ourselves in relation to nature. But even if we did, we might not know how to look, since we would have to rebel against intense contemporary pressures, as well as centuries of social, psychological, political, and economic inertia that has become a busy, mindless habit. Leaving the clock, we enter the moment. Renouncing the agenda, we receive our true purpose. Forgetting the deadening hours and workdays, we remember the aliveness and aloveness of a working world, a functioning world in which we fulfill our function. Mustn't we rebel against this so-called civilized time? Doesn't it seem as though we must mutiny against Captain Clock and his constant colonial raiding of the soul and the living world? Captain Clock and his conquest of our lives and of life itself must end. The psychologist James Hillman got at the need to shift our way of life and time in a conversation with Michael Ventura. Referring to how he, as a psychologist, had to help his patients deal with the insanity of the world, he said that part of what he found he had to do was treat people's schedules. As a coach and consulting philosopher, I encounter the need to do that as well. And like Hillman, I find that people can be incredibly resistant to treating their schedule. As a psychologist, Hillman found that this resistance seemed to cover over a deep sadness, maybe even a grief and a fear. And he felt it had to do with how we have degraded the world. The woods that we knew before have now become a fracking site. The meadow we took for granted became a shopping mall. 
We hear about species extinction and widespread pollution, and at least at a deep level, it probably freaks us out. It might be something we repress, but we're aware of it. It might be something we even claim to be skeptical about or hopeful about solutions, and yet at a deeper level, we recognize that a harm is being done to ourselves and to the world. So we're all the more motivated to keep busy so we don't have to really look at our lives and what we're doing to the world. James Hillman said a lot of interesting things in this regard, and one of them was this, quote, We paint our national history rosy and white, and paint our personal history gray. We're so willing to admit that we're trapped in our personal history but we never hear that said of our national history, end quote. We are in this moment questioning our culture because we are questioning time, questioning our relationship to temporality, questioning our sense of rhythm and our relationship to nature. Even if we set aside the fact that we live in a culture of busyness and distraction, there remains the fundamental notion of time that is peculiar to the West and may indeed go together with our busyness and distractedness. Philosophy, or love wisdom, means discernment. And that, in this case, entails the realization of the difference between encumbered relationships with time and unencumbered relationships with temporality, rhythm, and so on. Right now, many of us are encumbered. Captain Clock weighs upon the heart and soul, cracks his whip at our mind and body, demands that we carry his artificial ship onward. But to carry life forward, to realize a meaningful experience of life. What if we need to leave the clock and enter the moment to do that? Entering the moment, we can make plans when needed. Living the moment, presencing what we might call the being moment, that is, existence as a moment, moment as living experience. That doesn't mean living for the moment, being trapped. That's just another kind of agenda, one of impulse and hedonism. Again and again, Socrates, the icon of wisdom in the West, shows us that a spiritual or philosophical life, a truly coherent, skillful, and successful life, demands we throw out the clock. Wisdom, love, and beauty will not abide by our agendas, our notions of time, our stuckness in the past and the future. Again and again, Socrates gives himself to the moment. He gifts himself to life. Gifts himself to, with, through, as intimacy. With no fear of temporal pressures that civilization uses to control the rest of us, to tame us, to make us more stupid and stuck. Even on his way to his own indictment on charges that carry the threat of the death penalty, 
Socrates stops to speak with Euthyphro, who seems nothing more than a bonehead, and yet Socrates is completely willing to keep the inquiry going, with a heart wide open to Euthyphro's capacity for insight. But Euthyphro won't allow his agenda to get interrupted by anything, including insight, and he tells Socrates he has no more time to contemplate righteousness, holiness, sacredness, and service to the divine. Rather, he has to hurry off to have his own father killed. How many of us would have had time for Socrates if we met him? How many people had no time for Jesus? How many people had no time for Confucius or Buddha or countless other sages and saints who were right in front of them, living in their midst? Now, I'm not Socrates or Buddha, but we're asking if we can turn to their wisdom, the wisdom they claimed was inside each of us. If we're really honest, don't we often behave as if we have no time for wisdom, love, and beauty? Don't we often behave as if we have no time to stop the pattern of insanity that has us in its grips? We cope with it, we deal with it, we think maybe we'll have more time. Why do we think we need to hurry off to do things that leave us unfulfilled, that make our families sick, that make us sick, that make species extinct, that make a very small number of people obscenely wealthy and powerful in a narrow material sense? Who has time for the soul, for the sacred, for dispelling the pattern of insanity? Even the wealthy and powerful long to care for their own souls, and they feel as fundamentally unsatisfied as the average citizen, or at least some of them do. Indeed, I'm not at all villainizing the wealthy and powerful. They're just like the rest of us. We all want to be happy. We all want to experience love and connection and true meaning. And we all mostly do a crooked job of it. Our relationship to time makes happiness, love, wisdom, joy, and more fundamentally more difficult to realize. Now keep in mind we're talking about a deep sense of joy, peace, love, and meaning. Not the capacity to entertain ourselves or to feel content for a while when we make a lot of money or take a trip to Bali or distract ourselves with running our children or grandchildren around, participating in church functions or charity events, starting new companies, none of that. We're talking about the center of gravity of our being and whether in practice that is located in the soul or whether it's located somewhere else maybe in a context or matrix of clocks, calendars, agendas. Consider this abstract story. Once upon a time, there were people who made clocks. Clock is made of components. A clock is bits and pieces that mechanically fit together. They saw the universe as a giant clock. They thought humans could be manipulated like clockwork. They figured that, If there are components in anything, 
There are atomized parts and pieces, isolated individuals. Components mean something functional in a rationalistic sense, and they ask themselves questions like, are we using our resources rationally? But they rarely asked, are we using our resources relationally? Isn't that our abstract story? Doesn't our culture function rationally instead of relationally? Haven't we used the clock to reinforce narrow views of ourselves and the world? And haven't we used narrow views of ourselves and our world to reinforce time, clocks, agendas, manipulations, and control, isolations, fragmentations, atomizations? We're not talking about a choice between being rational and being irrational. We are talking about a fragmented notion of thinking, a fragmented notion of temporality, which then gives us a rationality that must itself be fragmented and fragmenting. What is this rationality that burns the candle of the soul at both ends? Why do we feel so tired? Why are we so busy? Why can our workaday world reach us at any hour? Why can we stay up all night and binge-watch distracting nonsense, taking in endless streams of entertaining noise? Maybe we have a bits-and-pieces vision of ourselves and the world which goes all together with a bits-and-pieces vision of time. And maybe all of this goes together with a vision of competitiveness, a vision of lack, a need to defend certain territory, a feeling of disconnection, a loss of meaning and engagement. What if time is relation, not a thing in which objects move and interact, the way we think things unfold in time in other conceptions? Instead of that, what if time is being itself? our being together. Relationality cannot mean isolated parts interacting. Relationality is the whole working. Imagine those two words put together, whole and working, the whole working. Each moment is whole working, like holism itself functioning. Each moment presences the circulation of life as if we are all integrated as a single body. An interwoven openness, luminous and knowing. Once we recognize or at least entertain the possibility of what we might call a relational dynamism, we might see that we can draw no strict boundaries, including any strict boundary of where thinking takes place, where mind arises. In such a way of visioning, of looking at the world, sensing the world, mind and time have to do with relationality, and that means that mind is non-local. What a wild suggestion. It's not the thing inside your skull 
but it somehow transcends the skull. In such a way of visioning our lives, we may sense intimately how the clock that comes all together with borders and barriers and obstacles actually makes us unwell or even insane. We may sense intimately how localizing and atomizing minds, bodies, and times, and properties, and objects does not mean finding our place, but becoming unrooted. If we let ourselves become cogs in the machinery of civilized insanity, we lose the relations of the soul. We no longer relate to life and to each other in a deeply engaged way. We no longer dance as the dance. Instead, we merely interact or even just react. Philosophy or love wisdom has to do with the shift from doing our lives to dancing them. Wisdom-based coaching is actually wisdom-based dance coaching, or just dancing, as the dance. By means of love wisdom, we create a hiatus from time. We liberate ourselves from the clutches of Captain Clock, even if we still have places to go and appointments to keep. No matter what we have scheduled, each situation in our lives has its own rhythms, its own temporality, which, as we can recall, is not the same thing as time. Philosophical practice immediately helps us to slow down, to feel less hurried, even while we get things done more skillfully and with a sense of effortlessness. It allows us to enter the moment and discover new possibilities. In the absence of concrete practices and clear philosophical sensibilities, the idea of entering the moment and discovering new possibilities is just another catchy slogan, just another bunch of self-help jive. But if we begin to integrate the means for making the empty slogan into an overflowing reality, then each step we take can feel like dancing. What do you think? Do we need to mutiny against Captain Clock? Can we understand the difference between the pattern of insanity and becoming truly reasonable, skillful, and wise? Do we need to find ways to take back our sense of temporal spaciousness? Why is it that we have gotten more powerful tools than ever, and yet many of us are as busy as the days before unions? All of this was only part of the story of time in our culture, but if you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org 
and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Nikos Patadakis, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.